Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. It's September, and kind of like Poxitani Phil, some people look to our good friend, Dr. Dale Rollins, for an annual event. It's called the Quail Forecast, and we're going to be the first to learn it. Dr. Dale, tell us more. Well, thank you, Gary, and I don't believe I've ever been referred to as Poxitani <laughs> Phil, but uh, I don't want to have to spell that, but... Uh, Yes, there are a lot of people that are interested in the quail forecast and, you know, typically September 1 when dove season opens, that gets us to really thinking about the upcoming hunting season and, of course, we're most interested here on this podcast with the quail outlook. Uh, and it's a rag to riches story as it often is. In fact, uh, I based this year's outline for the podcast on last year's and it wasn't that different. Uh, again, you're always going to have some areas that are a little bit better, some that are a little worse and some that are much worse this year some that are much better and so we will go through those on a regional basis I'll start off below by saying uh, in general if you want a really great quail hunting experience uh, paraphrase the old saying about go south young man because uh, South Texas which had a good year last year they had the breeding capital going into this year and unlike West Texas, they've been in a relatively utopic situation rainfall-wise. Um, they're complaining to me about, well, they don't get a good roadside count because the vegetation's too thick. I said, you know, cry on my shoulder here. <laughs> kind of thing. Not much sympathy there. Because until just recently, uh, we, we recently got some good rains across much of central and West Texas. But those rains are too late to help us from a quail production standpoint for 2020. In fact, they anytime we get the, a cold rain like we've had recently, if you've got chicks less than say 15, 20 days old that mama's trying to brood them, she can't brood them all and they're not fully feathered. Mm. So they're not able to thermoregulate or keep their body temperature same. So uh, probably lose some of those young chicks. Long run, the rain is absolutely incredible. And again, it's gonna give us the winter weed crop it's going to give us broomweed next year, so we'll be seeing the praises of good rain. I got to go back to April and March and April. We had some incredibly good rains coming out of last winter, and then it turned off dry as a I don't know what in mid-May, and that resulted in us getting what I call cheated, with emphasis on cheat, cheat grass, the annual brome grasses, Japanese brome in our case, little barley. Some of these winter annuals that the ranchers often love, they call winter grass, but if it doesn't rain after those things have matured, which it didn't this year, it looks like mesquite trees in a wheat stubble field. And that's what West Texas looked like. Still does, although again, uh, we've had some rains recently. So uh, as a quail person, you're always a weather watcher. When you and describe south, what are some of those communities that you're referencing? The somewhere basically south of Highway 285, which runs from uh, roughly Hebronville mm -hmm. over towards Valfuris, and that's the sweetest of the sweet spots. I mean, historically, that's just if you've ever been down that country. When I talk about brush sculpting and softball habitat evaluation, those Delmeda sands that are most of that country, it's just naturally like that. So it's those guys have a leg up on the rest of us, and they have a longer growing season. So again, this rain that we got recently, well again, they had Hurricane Hannah, 
They got three to five inches. They've had a couple of other nice rains. I'm expecting, uh, this is uh, shortly after Labor Day when we're taping this, and I'm expecting some uh, new brood reports from okay. that part of the world because they can raise hatches at that latitude much more so than we can at the latitude that we're at at, at Roby, Texas kind of thing. Were our quail populations really kind of boom and bust? Is that kind of the cycle? Absolutely, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the last, since 2016, again, 15, 16 were off the chart, best years I've ever seen. But we've been in the doldrums since that time, and Paul Melton, uh, who's the chairman of our advisory committee, he basically looks at me over the last three years and says, Rollins, if you were a football coach, you'd be fired. <laughs> and uh, I hope he's joking, but he's got a point, you know. I mean, uh, we haven't been able to overcome that precipitation thing. I mean, it's, it's vitally important, and we're always looking for ways that we can insulate quail when we're in that La Nina year, we're still struggling to do most of that. Weather has such a big impact and there's some huge weather dynamics uh, that we have heard of, some of us understand, need to know more about, but uh, there's some causal factors relating to weather that really have an impact. Yeah, our quail populations, especially in West Texas, are cyclical on about a five to six year cycle. And what's driving that? the El Nino Southern Oscillation. We just hear the El Nino or La Nina, but it's all part of that big climatic situation. We don't have time to go into that. We've got a new board member on our research foundation, uh, Pete Delkus. Mm -hmm. For those of you in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you'd recognize Pete as the meteorologist for WFAA-TV in Dallas. That's and right. So at some point in time, I'm going to have uh, Pete as a host, and we're going to talk more about some of those weather events and so forth that certainly are so key to our quail situation. But uh, again, we've been in El, uh, been in La Nina for the last six months. Bad news is we're forecast to be in La Nina this winter. That ain't great news for quail hunters. Uh, and anytime that our summer forecast is, the, when your local weatherman says a dome of high pressure, right? that's a four letter word. And that means hot, dry conditions. And again, that's what we've been besieged with across West Texas for really the last six months. We're hoping September has changed that. Uh, but again, South Texas, and again, especially south of about Highway 285, has enjoyed a much more pleasant situation, and it's being reflected in their quail numbers. Um, the average score of, across all my forecasters in West Texas for Bob White's was a four, and I think most of those are optimistic. The average for my South Texas forecasters was 8.5 plus. Wow. And I think those are realistic. Again, so if you've got any coupons to clip in South Texas, uh, this would be a good year to try to do that. We talking just Bob Whites or are we talking some blue quail? Well, that's mainly Bob Whites okay. down there. Now, our blue quail forecast, again, it's the hard candy Christmas. Um, again, the most of the country, in West Texas at least, uh, the mode, uh, the, the average score was a four, but most of them were twos kind of thing. And uh, there are a few bright spots, as there are in the Bob White forecast. In the Bob White forecast, there are really two counties that I'd point to, Runnels County and Stonewall County. For whatever reason, Runnels County is kind of a, it's just kind of a honey hole. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've had some most consistent quail production in West Texas. So again, if you got friends in Runnels County, uh, the forecast I got from there were eights, uh, while as much the rest of the country was two and three. So. You got any friends out there, you might want to give them a call this year. I'm, I'm someone that, Dale, will, when it rains, I'll go out and check the rain gauge. I'm always curious, but I don't do a very good job of keeping 
track of what those figures are, keeping a log. Is that a good idea? I think it is, Gary. I, and I use a program called Farm Logs. Uh, there's a free version or there's a version that costs you $30 a year, and, and I use the $30 version. But I've got about 15 fields. I mean, this is for farmers more than anybody. But you can outline the fields in the various areas. So my fields are places like the Matador WMA and the Rolling Plains Core Research Ranch and uh, several private ranches that I know around Texas because I'm curious. And farm logs will give me an update at 6 o'clock the next morning that this field in this county received 0.84 inches of rain last night. But what's even more valuable to me is I can click on the cumulative rainfall and I can see how this year's curve looks relative to the 10-year mean, wow. the 10-year average. And that's useful to me. I mean, most of the country in the Rolling Plains, even before this nice rain recently, was just a little bit below normal, but the distribution of that rainfall was grossly different. Again, it was heavily loaded on March and April and then really nothing since that I time. See. But the average was, was okay. Well, that's kind of like the old boy sitting on with one foot on a block of ice and one on the fire. On average, he's okay, but there are those extremes. And again, the timing of that rain has some tremendous, incredible impacts on the kinds of vegetation that we get and, of course, the amount of vegetation. And so both of those are very important to a quail. And that's the kind of information as a manager you can utilize to your benefit, right? Absolutely. And there are others out there. I just learned of one recently called iweathernet.com, which mm -hmm. I, I can't speak to, but uh, I'm interested in it. And then we can go to the NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration website. And they have the drought monitor. Mm -hmm. And again, prior to this rainfall we got recently, if you were to look at the drought monitor over the last six months, you can pretty well look at that and say, I don't want to go quail hunting in West Texas because severe drought. And so they'll give you a color of a graph. That they'll also show the, you know, I just print mine off of the Southern Great Plains because I'm also interested in Eastern New Mexico. We have a lot of Texas quail hunters go out to Southeastern New Mexico because of all the state land, state and BLM I see. land they can hunt on. So that's always of interest to us as well. And then there's a metric called the Palmer Modified Drought Index. Okay. And that basically, it ranges from a minus four to a plus four. 2015, it was like almost plus four, euphoric conditions. Yes. Uh, minus four was what it was in 2011. Wow. So that gives us, a, as a manager, you can look at that and, and those those running averages like that have tremendous impact on, uh, on the quail. But let's get to my quail trap line because again, I, I send out an email in early August to about 75 people and ask them for their prediction. What do you score the quail forecast, the upcoming quail forecast, on a scale of one, which is pitiful, to 10, which is 2016 <laughs> kind of thing. And these are not necessarily trained biologists. Most of them are not. There are a few that are parks and wildlife or other trained professionals, if you will. But these are our ranchers or quail hunters that are out there every day of the year. And so they have, a, the people that I select have a really good feel for quail. And so I ask them to rate their, their situation but keep in mind that the scores are anecdotal. And keep in mind that they're kind of a long-range forecast. They're looking at it on 1st of August. Well, quail season doesn't start until November 1. You wouldn't take a weather forecast very seriously if, if it was made on August 1st, saying, what are we going to be doing on Thanksgiving? So keep in mind that temporal dynamic, if you will, that can affect that. And again, uh, our, my quail forecasters, bless their hearts, tend to be like cotton farmers. 
optimism runs eternal. You know, we're always going to do better next year. That's kind right. Of thing. And I guess optimism is okay in that situation. I think our scores are tend to be a little inflated by that, but uh, take that for what it is. And this is what they've observed? Is this what they've uh, counted? Is it methods to their judgments? How would you describe they go about a little that? Bit of, a little bit of both. Some of them are products of our Quail Masters program or their participants in what we call the Texas Quail Index. And so they're basing their recommendations on some metrics that they do, some protocols. Most of them are just, I hate to call it seat of the pants, but again, they're, they're, they're windshield reports. As I've checked my cattle, as I've been gathering cattle, this is what the Cowboys told me, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of data. And as dry as it's been over the last uh, really four months, incredibly, I've been hearing of some brood reports even over the last three weeks kind of thing. Have so, you? So some bumblebees is what they're often referred to, those very small newly hatched chicks. And some of those are, are still being reported. Now again, I'm not optimistic that many of those are going to make it through a cold rain like many of us enjoyed recently, but, uh, but they are out there. So again, our report overall was mediocre. But there are some bright spots. I mentioned Runnels and Stonewall counties as being two of those. And again, in South Texas, uh, again, especially uh, south of 285. Now, you get down in South Texas, so you got Hebronville on the west. You go just up the Rio Grande, not too terribly far, to Carrizo uh, Springs and Demick County. And I understand they were just dry. They were parched like all of West Texas was. So not good reports, dismal reports from my, from my trap line there in uh, Demick County. But you move another 40, 50 miles southeast and all is good, kind of thing. Just where the rain fell and where those weather conditions were right. So uh, another thing that we're seeing, I just spent three days at, I have now two blue quail leases out west of Crane, Texas. So uh, roughly south of Odessa, 40 miles, something like that. Spent three days out there last week because we had picked up some new country and it was hard. Was it? it and it, they only got a half inch rain out of this recent event. So uh, most of the blue quail country has still been very dry. The high plains, the western high plains is kind of an exception to that. Uh, and then I pick up a few reports of some sixes and sevens, but mostly the blue reports. And what I would give my Crane County leases be a two. A two. Two, two and a half. So uh, if you're going to hunt blue quail this year, you better put your running shoes on. I mean, that's always the standard. But the coveys are small, and that suggests all the bird, most of the birds you're dealing with are old birds. They didn't raise any chicks, so we're not seeing these 25-plus bird coveys. We're seeing these 8 to 10 bird coveys, and those are mostly adults. This ain't their first rodeo. When they hear those shotguns go off, those door, truck door slam, they're going to be hauling, so be ready to chase them. Look at that. I had no idea that uh, the blue quail in particular would, through experience, adapt and kind of learn from that. Uh, I tell you, if I was talking to an ethologist, an animal behavioralist, and I would tell them what I think blue quail know, they'd say, oh, that's, that's crazy. For example, oftentimes in blue, in blue quail country out in the west of the Pecos, you're hunting them with jeeps or lantern dune buggies or something like that, and several vehicles going through there. It's a kind of a Roman chariot race almost relative to quail hunting but it's commonly done out there. Well, the quail have learned, in my opinion, that the way to get away from those mechanized vehicles is to fly across a fence. And if quail, if those blue quail are within, I'm gonna say 500 yards of a fence, and quail typically don't fly 500 yards, they fly 200 yards. Okay. 
But if you're after those blue quail, they will fly to the deer's fence if it's reasonable, 500 yards, to get away from you. So should quail be able to reason like that? I don't know. All I know is what I see kind of thing. And I'm a firm believer that blue quail have learned to avoid you like that. What about hunting this fall? Should folks be thinking about their interests in hunting this fall, given the quail forecast? Some of the people that I've, uh, again, gotten the reports that are less than three is they're saying, we're not having any hunters this year. Uh, I hate to pick on counties, but Borden County, I have three, three of my trap line out there, and they said all of them said it's dismal. Uh, the landowner among those said, well, we won't be hunting. So uh, basically, if, if, if it's a three or lower, uh, you won't be doing much hunting. Even if you're there, you won't be doing much hunting if you catch my drift kind of thing because the birds will be few and far between. Again, if you've got a score, and there's nothing magical to these scores, but if you've got a score of five or more that says you've got an average quail season, I would just say all things in moderation at that point. Uh, if you've got an eight plus, take advantage of it. You've got a, a really great situation, and again, you, you can stockpile quail to some degree, but it's not like you're going. It's not. It's like a one of the modern day ice chests, you know. Yes. I mean, we used to think you put ice in this morning, you put more ice in this afternoon. Now some of them are touting three to four or five days, uh, insulating the ice better. And we've learned to do that to some degree. And again, our situations down in South Texas, that's primo quail country. Uh, they know the value of those quail, so they're going to use them, but they're not going to abuse them. There are certain things you can do kind of on a self-regulation level, things that you can do on your own to, to practice that moderation that you talk about? Well, a lot of times, uh, I haven't heard so much of it this year, but when we go through a couple of years of poor years, uh, the landowners will clamor, Parks and Wildlife needs to step up and either shut down the season or reduce the season, we have a four month quail season, or reduce the bag limit from 15 down to something, they ought to be the ones in charge. Parks and Wildlife is gonna say, we're in the business of selling hunting, license, hunting licenses, and it's the landowner's opportunity to regulate how many people hunt out there. So they wanna put, the, they wanna give that opportunity back to the landowner, and the landowner in that case wants the state to be the one with the heavy hand because they don't wanna make their lessees mad situation. I see. I see. Uh, the biology situation is if you're going to cut down on the season, it'd be better to cut off February than okay. it would be early in season. That's a tough thing for a quail hunter to do because February is a great month on quail, but hunting is a little bit harder, quote unquote harder, on a quail population in February than it would be in November, December. We can go into the metrics of that at some point in time in the future. And then the bag limit, if you want to make it any meaningful impact on the bag limit, you'd have to reduce that from 15 down to about four. Is that right? Yeah, so that's a draconian cut, and most uh, hunters would not be willing to support that, but that's what it would take to have an effect. There are some other things you can do, and, and that's uh, if you're hunting, Minimize crippling loss and wounding loss, birds that are not hit but unretrieved. And that's something that as a quail hunter just digs at your gut kind of thing because you hate to see that bird's leg drop but then you can't find it kind of thing. So I think there are several things. One is use some constraint about what birds you're shooting at. Use some restraint. Don't shoot that bird that flies up. Uh, take those 30-yard shots but not those 40-yard shots. Use a good quality shot shell use a good quality dog, mm. a good retriever, and not all bird dogs are retrievers, but if you've got a great retriever, you know the value of a good 
dead bird dog, if you will, and to be able to find those birds once you knock them down. Uh, probably stay away from some of the smaller gauges. I mean, the trendy guns today are 28s, 28 gauges and 410s. Most people aren't, I ain't mad at any of you, <laughs> but most people are not uh, proficient enough, certainly with a 410, to be out there hunting wild quail. Pin rear quail, preserved quail, that's one thing, but hunting a wild quail, especially our blues, uh, those are tougher birds and your crippling loss is probably gonna go up. So uh, probably move on up to a 20 gauge, even though you, you think you're a better shot than that, but you'll have fewer dead birds to get away from in the field. My friend Paul Melton, who uh, I'm gonna interview one of these days, uh, he says, if you hunt with a 28 gauge, you better have a damn good retriever. <laughs> well, at the time, I had little Annie, and you've hunted with little Annie, and she was a darn good retriever. But if you don't have a good retriever, and many folks today are carrying labs with them, you know, for that purpose. That's right. And to, again, minimize the loss of those birds in the field. How can that landowner, Dr. Dale, have that conversation with their lease hunters and just say, here's what we've got in front of us, here's the situation, is that a conversation that they can have? Absolutely, and, and I think on the longer term leases, it's probably gonna be the quail hunter that initiates that conversation. For example, my reporter from Mitchell County, Mitchell County's got some big ranches and some, you know, it's one of the more hallowed grounds in uh, West Texas, and so he leases to a lot of different players, but many of them come from the Southeast, and he said, you know, my hunters, in a year like this, they'll just come out here and really just work the dogs. That's what—that's their main enjoyment. And, and I'm to the point, Gary, I'm now 65, I tell people I'm not mad at quail anymore. I enjoy quail hunting as much as anybody, but I don't feel like I have to have 15 birds to have had a successful hunt. I see. I don't, I don't have to have two. Mm. And again, I just enjoy being out there. And the older the generation gets, and again, we're, I don't know if we're saying we're fortunate or unfortunate in the quail hunting community to have an old infrastructure, but the older you get, the uh, the less or the more conservative you are regarding the future of those quail and so forth. So it tends to be self-regulating to some degree. And maybe that trip that the hunters do take when they understand the bird populations just aren't there that year, maybe that's a trip they're looking at habitat. Maybe that's a trip they're looking at supplemental water or other management tools that they can begin to talk about, plan for, and, and maybe uh, visit with the landowner about. Absolutely, and oftentimes they'll be, again, able to fund it. You know, the, the landowner, I can't make generalities here, but many landowners are not going to do anything extra for the quail. And if it's only reducing the stocking rate, that's Rick Snipes, the former president of our foundation, beautiful ranch over in Stonewall County. He says, if there's 20 things that you can do to help quail, give me graze, give me control of the grazing and the brush control, you can have the other 18. So put those in perspective. You know, those are the most powerful tools we have, those extensive tools, the brush management, the grazing management. And then you get into the intensive cultural practices like supplemental feeding, watering, some of those kind of things, which uh, may or may not help, but they will always be expensive to implement kind of things. So somebody's got to bear that expense. It probably won't be the landowner but it may be those people that have a 10-year hunting lease. Many of the less seasoned South Texas, uh, we, we're gonna talk about cows and quail and grazing ink impacts and so forth at some point in time, but many of those long-term lessees, oftentimes are corporate corporations that have a country lease, they've bought out the grazing rights. Oh, I see. In other words, the, the grazing rights were worth maybe $8 an acre, 
the quail lease is worth maybe $12 an acre. Well, if the guy that got the grass for $8 an acre had it for an annual term, it's just natural that he's going to graze it too heavily, and then you basically cut the legs out of the quail hunter situation. So to protect themselves, they may pay up to $20 an acre to get both the cattle and the, the, the quail lease, and then they're the ones in charge so they don't find themselves investing a lot of money and then coming out to find out that they've been neutered, if you will, by the grazing uh, Degree of, degree of grazing that, that the landowner might practice. Interesting. So there are some financial arrangements which kind of can hedge uh, in protecting that habitat and those variables on the ground that you need for good quail. Absolutely. You, you tend to see that more in South Texas. Again, South Texas just has a history of those corporate leases, King Ranch being a good example of that. But more of that type of a, of a philosophy and a relationship as opposed to West Texas. West Texas is still a little uh, less developed in, a, in, that in that respect. A little bit more of a blue collar kind of experience in West Texas as opposed to South Texas. Your quail forecast, Dr. Dale, when it's released, uh, you're, I guess, the first one that's out. There are other forecasts that are maybe issued by state agencies and others with an eye on it, but uh, you're kind of the first to go. So a lot of people look at your numbers. Absolutely. I began to get calls in July nationally from various outdoor riders saying, what do you think? I said, well, it's really even too early for me to hedge a guess. But yeah, mine comes out in September. Again, it's not perfect. Uh, the Park, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, theirs typically comes out uh, about the 1st of October. It's based on real numbers because their biologists are out doing roadside counts. I would say that most of the time I'm, I'm, ple I'm pleased enough with the, uh, with the precision of, of my counts as far as forecasting on a regional basis, and that's all Parks and Wildlife tries to do is forecast on an eco-region basis, so Rolling Plains versus South Texas. Uh, also, as a native of Oklahoma, and I still have property up in Oklahoma, I look at the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservations, and they do their counts in August and October, but it's typically October before they publish their counts. So uh, yeah, they, theirs are a little bit more structured and sometimes more recent, and obviously if it's anything weather-related, you want the most recent forecast that you can get. Can conditions or the true effect on quail populations, can they change between your forecast being announced to when season begins? Absolutely, and, and one of the enigmas, one of the riddles is occasionally, and we may see it as a result of this cold, wet spell that we had just recently, oftentimes that cold, wet spell will come along in late October, and I'll hear this report time and time again, well, we had lots of quail, but now they're gone. So, you know, that's just a very common question. That's what kicked off our big study we did about 10 years ago called Operation Idiopathic Decline because it's not uncommon for us to get reports that everything's looking good going into Labor Day and now opening day of quail season two months later, where, are the, where have the quail gone kind of thing. Uh, sometimes they hadn't gone anywhere. I'd say most of the time they hadn't gone anywhere. But uh, there are some things that could be happening, whether it be disease, whether it be stress from that cold, wet winter weather, early wet winter weather. Uh, some of those kind of things we don't have a great grasp on. And I always appreciate reports from our hunters going to field. I mean, you know, we're going to send out roughly 75 to 100,000 quail hunters this year, which is pretty poor. 
It uh, used to be 300,000 just 25 years ago. But we're going to have 75,000 eyes out there. And anytime you see something strange, I'd like to know about it. Whether you find some dead quail that apparently not, you didn't shoot them, but your dog found them, or you find feather piles. Some of those kind of things, as an uh, inquiring mind, I want to know. So report those to us so we can follow up on those if need be. Can our dove hunting community have any help in uh, observations or evidence? Or are they hunting different areas of the property? Well, they're yes and no. They're typically hunting different areas of the property or they're there for just a, you know, they're at this water hole and they may or may not see birds there. And the dove hunters catch some flack sometimes. Again, when we have these quote unquote mysterious declines between Labor Day, one of the things you often hear is the dove hunter shot them. Uh, I don't believe that. But uh, they often, it's kind of like the Cajun quail hunter, you know. Yes. Uh, certain, <laughs> certain segments of our group just sometimes get the finger pointed at them whether or not they uh, deserve it or not. So bottom line, um, maybe practice moderation this season. Uh, is covey size a good indicator of, of abundance if, if you see lower numbers in a covey? Not really, because uh, let's say that we've got a covey of 12 birds, which is an average covey, and let's say that me and you walk into them with our dogs, and we get four of them on a covey rise. Then we come back in three weeks, and if, you know, if it's, it's not seven birds, but it's back to 11 or 12 birds, we go, well, hammer them again. Uh, those birds, that covey unit is a very, fairly fluid collection. And there's something seems seemingly magical about six. If that covey gets down below six birds, they're typically going to go join up with somebody else. So you'll think now all of a sudden you see 14 birds in a covey and think, well, I hadn't been into these. Actually, you have. So covey size per se is not a good indicator. Probably flush rate. How many coveys you're flushing in a day would be a better indicator. And of course, if you're in, in really good country, uh, flushing maybe or pointing maybe 20 coveys a day and all of a sudden you see four. There's a time in the season that as a, as a long time quail hunter, generally this hits me in February. At some point, even in 2016, when we were awash with quail, there comes a time in the season when as a quail hunter you say, enough's enough. The birds are just super wild. You just, you basically begin to have empathy for them. You know, they've had a tough year and, and we know, again, we know that how many birds we enter the breeding season with is going to have a big impact on how many we're going to have next fall. So we, get, we need to be conservative with our breeding stock or be cognizant of our breeding stock. And we need to think of our long-term weather forecast. Again, we're looking at a La Nina forecast for this winter. That probably doesn't bode well for us next spring. So we want to carry the maximum number of birds we can, or that is reasonable, uh, into the breeding season next May so we can hopefully have enough reproduction to keep us going the following year. Even though the quail forecast has been issued, would you want to hear from landowners and for those lease hunters that are on their property and maybe with some observations? Absolutely. Uh, they can always email me at drollins at quailresearch.org and always interested uh, in their photographs, in their stories. Most or many of the times, I will, if it's something I think is uh, of interest to a broader public, I'll post it with their permission. I'll post it on our Facebook page. We've got about 9,000 people that follow us on our Facebook page, and so if you've got game camera photos, and it doesn't have to be quail, you know, it could be that you're monitoring a quail feeder, and you've got a bobcat that's sitting on top of it, or whatever the case might be. But I've got several of my trap line that are, that are avid trappers mm -hmm. with electronic means, game cameras, and so I'm always anxious to see what kind of uh, 
catch, if you will, they can send to me. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. We appreciate you joining us today, and I encourage you to join us again next month for a special topic, rattlesnakes and quail. If you're a bird dog owner who's ever had your dog bitten by a rattlesnake, you know about that experience. We'll have good information from a veterinarian who's treated hundreds of dogs bit by rattlesnakes. The information that he will pass on I think will be of value and be of great interest. So join us next month for Rattlesnakes and Quail. Until then, I'm Gary Joyner wishing you a good day. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.